Greetings, friends and neighbors. This is Volts for October 19th, 2022. Making sure electric vehicles help rather than hurt electricity grids. I'm your host, David Roberts. Just about every analyst now agrees that electric vehicles are on the verge of a period of rapid expansion. All those new EVs represent an enormous new source of electricity demand. They also represent an enormous new source of electricity storage. If they are charged and discharged with no thought to larger grid conditions, they could pose a danger to stability and reliability. But if their charging and discharging is managed, even at the margins, they can serve as a grid stability tool. Their charging can be timed for periods when power is cleanest, cheapest, and most abundant. However, to be managed in this way, they must communicate with the grid to which they are attached. That vehicle grid interface represents an intense area of research and entrepreneurship in the clean energy world. One company that has made substantial recent strides in this area is WeaveGrid, which is helping to run several utility programs meant to shift the charging times of EVs. The company raised a $15 million Series A funding last year and this year launched EV Pulse a program available to EV drivers in Northern and Central California, where wildfire risks are high. It will enroll eligible drivers in an automated charging program, but it will also offer them early warning when utility PG&E may shut off power due to wildfire risk, allowing them to charge in advance. I've been following this market with interest, so I was eager to talk to WeaveGrid's Amanda Myers-Wisser, head of policy, and Smithy Mishra, head of utility partnerships, about the company's technology, the programs it is running for utilities, and the possibilities for future communication between EVs and grids. Okay, then, uh, without further ado, Amanda Myers-Wisser and Smithy Mishra, welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. I want to talk about the details of EV control, but I want to start maybe by taking a step back. Amanda, maybe you could feel this one. I just want to get a sense of kind of what are our expectations for how many EVs are going to be on the road, uh, you know, in 2030? And what are the dangers that that poses to the grid? Like, why are people concerned about this headlong growth of EVs? I can say with confidence that the EVs are coming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you can look at the automaker announcements. You can look at the policy goals and targets and mandates. And we can see that EVs are going to come online. They're going to come online very fast. In terms of projections of where we'll be in 2030, I mean, pick your uh, uh, favorite projector. Right. That be? You know, there, there's a bunch out there from BNEF or BCG or EI. Um, but I think, you know, we're looking at uh, anywhere between, with a range of those projections, 10 to, let's say, 35 million EVs in the U.S. on the road. And 
that's impactful. Um, it's impactful to the grid. It's impactful to customers. And so, yeah, excited to have that discussion here. But I think this transition is happening fast and it's exciting from many perspectives, but particularly from that climate perspective. But from the grid perspective, in particular, people are raising alarms about this, basically, and and pointing to California as sort of evidence that EVs are already kind of disrupting the grid. Like, what are people worried might happen as EVs spread? There's many viewpoints on this. I mean, you, you say worry. I think there can be concern. I think there's also enthusiasm. I think for a long time, they're framed as kind of strain on the grid or right. or something that was uncontrolled, right? But I think when managed correctly, and I'm sure we'll get into that, um, they can really be an asset to the grid. Um, and that's really where I feel like the, the story is kind of evolving to is, is what EVs have been and what they will be as we get scale. You know, looking back about a, a little over a month ago in early September in, in California, I think, you know, with some of the challenges on the grid of the heat dome and, and and that was when a lot of this discussion kind of became revived of what is the role of EVs? You know, we're, we're trying to promote the adoption, but then we have grid constraints. And what does that mean? What does it mean when you are going full speed ahead on electrify everything, but also saying we have some constraints when it comes to power use? especially during certain times of the day. But again, I think, you know, EVs presenting a very flexible load and pairing that with a grid that's increasingly cleaner with renewable sources, there's a lot of compatibility there. And there's a lot that you can, when designed well, you can get some really great outputs of driving down emissions in both of those sectors and meeting other goals, whether that be, you know, cost benefits and other kind of societal benefits and, and other customer benefits, right? Like people, once they drive EVs, they love them. So um, I know I'm dipping into a lot of things right there, but I think the, the high level perspective is EVs can be an asset to the grid when managed. Right. So I guess, I guess I'd say the worry is that uncontrolled, they will have negative effects on the grid, but controlled, they could have positive effects. Is that basically right, uh, Smithy? Yeah, I mean, the way that another way that folks think about this problem sometimes is you look out and say there are about 280 million cars on the road. What happens when they all go electric? Yes. Just to pause and emphasize this, I'm not sure that is widely understood or appreciated, but these are really big loads, like yeah. house-sized electricity demand. Absolutely. This is going to double the peak of any household that adds a level two charger, which which yeah. is a very convenient option for folks. So. You know, there's plenty of people who are using their wall outlets for level one, slower charging. Your car will have that full eight hours overnight to charge, and that's great. But we're seeing increased adoption of level two charging, and that is a massive load, a massive change, and, and something the grid was not designed for. So it's a fair question. Say, is the grid ready for something that it never contemplated? Our grid has infrastructure that was made 100 years ago. I worked at a utility and literally was trying to track down paperwork from assets that were there in the time of Abraham Lincoln and <laughs> literally boxes of paper that no one could find. Uh, was that PG&E by any chance? We just, uh, <laughs> we just did a pod about that a few weeks ago about the ancient transmission lines. You know, this was actually out east. Oh, good. Very comforting. And an East Coast utility, but infrastructure everywhere is old. <laughs> Having said that, Grid modernization is not a new topic for utilities. This is not the first time utilities said, oh, our grid has old assets. 
what do we do now? Grid modernization is something that utilities have been thinking about transformation to their models for the last 30 to 50 years. <laughs> and so EVs are a meaningfully different component than anything the grid's transformed with before. But there are some systems in place to add that optimization layer for managed charging. And how do we do integration well? How do we apply the lessons from experiences that we've had as a sector in the past? So if I'm just sort of dumbing down the challenge here, it basically has to do with when are these EVs charging, right? Because what you don't want is a bunch of EVs hooking up to charge at times when the grid is full of dirtier energy or if the grid is stressed and oversubscribed. You want to charge at times when energy is cleaner and more available. So at the root, this is about timing the charging of EVs. And I have heard about a bunch of programs where EV chargers are sort of programmed to shift and charge at particular times. But that is not the approach y'all are taking. Y'all are um, the intelligence and the coordinating software is in the car and it's known as telematics. Yeah, that's right. And we can work with the charging equipment directly as well, but we find a complementary solution to that is to add the telematics layer. And that software in cars and data streams has been used in insurance applications and city planning and other areas for, for ages. But applying it to electric vehicles is something that is quite new. And, and it really gives you a more granular understanding of how to give drivers the best experience. Because we're talking about grid problems, but the grid there, honestly, is like the first service industry is there to make sure people have the lights on when they need it. And in this case, be able to drive their cars whenever they need to. And so... By having the data in the car itself, you know that battery's state of charge. So if it's particularly low, making sure someone is charged up to an emergency level so they can go to the hospital, they can go pick up their kids, they can do a beer run at a moment's mm -hmm. notice, right? People need their cars for a lot of things these days. And you get a real measure of flexibility for if that driver is parked for an extended period, layering that with the state of charge and knowing what their true needs are. Yeah. So how does, we don't have to get too deep into this or too technical, but I would like to hear a little bit about what the heck telematics <laughs> are, yeah. like what all information is gathered and is it, are they, is that in all modern cars? Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, great. So take it to a, a step back to that. Um, yes, all cars are computers on wheels and the data streams connected to them are collectively referred to as telematics. Telematics data can be everything from temperature sensors, the ability to lock and unlock your car. It's that battery state of charge. It's, it's all of the information that goes into the maintenance of your vehicle mm -hmm. and, and your driver experience relating back to the automaker. All cars have had these computers embedded in them for the last you know decade or, or two. And then the subset of the telematics data is what is most relevant for electric vehicle charging. And so companies like ours can access that subset of data for enabling a better charging specific experience. Are those telematics standardized across vehicle manufacturers and across years of manufacturing such that you already know without going out and looking what's available and what's in there? Or is this something where you're going to have to have automakers 
coordinate or tweak or like, are the automakers going to have to do something new here or is everything already in place? You know, David, I wonder if I will ever have a conversation that doesn't include the word, are there standards? (laughs) 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 As you may anticipate, no, there are not standards. (laughs) And, And so, yes, there are software upgrades. And even within the same manufacturer, they could shift to entirely new software architecture in a new model year. And so those changes happen and are really important. It's why there is a layer of complexity to actually keeping that experience up to date. Now, WeaveGrid's approach to that is that we create value for for automakers as well as for the grid so that we can collaborate with those automakers directly on their software tools. But we work with each of them basically individually to understand the experiences of their drivers, what each of their data streams will look like, because they're currently all pretty separate. Uh, (laughs) So... (laughs) Is it fair to say then that what you would like, what would be helpful is if there were some some industry standardization of these, of like what the data streams look like, what's collected and what it's because right now you're getting sort of bespoke data from each different kind of automaker? That's correct. Um, in terms of what I would like, I mean, I'm probably colored by my experience, as you can tell from my last comment, <laughs> that... I don't want to wait for standards. There's so much change that we need in electric transportation urgently that I've just seen standards conversations take their own decade. (laughs) And and so rather than asking for that, like, look, machine learning and technology adaptation is something that's growing quickly. I think our engineering capabilities to handle different data streams will probably grow faster than the ability to get standards in place. So (laughs) uh, we're game for it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it's fair to say that every modern car is gathering the information that you need to make your products and offerings work. That's correct. And why is it that, you know, a lot of a lot of these programs run are charger based are the intelligence and coordinating software is in the charger. You've gone with telematics with having the kind of the, the information in the vehicle rather than the chargers. Why do you think that's a superior approach? To relate to what we were just talking about with standards, the data quality and the types of data you get from telematics is advanced and and very high quality. Mm. Um, And so, first of all, that kind of relates to standards. And already, telematics data is very high quality. And there there is a movement to have that more kind of standardized. But that is one of the big reasons why there is kind of an an interest in not just relying entirely on, on what chargers can provide, but also telematics. And... You know, you, you asked the very kind of boiled down question of like, it seems like it's important when cars are, are charging and, and that's correct. But I would say when and where. Mm. And so with telematics, you also get really good location data. Mm. And that's pretty important because similar to some other technologies in this kind of clean energy space, such as rooftop solar, there's a social contagion element to electric vehicles. Mm. And, and so the adoption is, is somewhat clustered. Oh, right. So that has its own kind of impacts from like a grid perspective and from a user perspective, right? Where you are in your car, where your car is, determines whether or not you want to charge and what that charging might look like. And so that's a really important piece of data that we can get from telematics location. And then another one is the state of charge, the battery state of charge. So Mm -hmm. kind of what is that battery level at a given time? 
And that's really important as well when you're trying to do sophisticated optimization um, of charging is just knowing where the car is, the state of charge of the battery. You can do a lot with that information to provide a really good customer experience and driver experience, but also to give those great benefits that we said, you know, EVs can be an asset if managed well. Yeah, it is It is the world's biggest giant distributed battery, but it's also every one of those batteries has a driver who is <laughs> doesn't yeah. care that much about the grid. <laughs> so the idea here is, broadly speaking, Weave Grid's big idea is going to take all this information we have via telematics and use it to induce EV drivers to charge at particular times and places. Basically, we're going to give, the idea is to give utilities some degree of control over when and where EVs charge. So describe one of these programs like EV Pulse, this new EV Pulse program. What does it look like from the utilities point of view and what does it look like from the EV driver's point of view? Sure. So I believe you're referring to a program that we're operating right now with PG&E. So this is an interesting one where we're actually, you know, supporting people during the wildfire season when there's a lot of stress about, hey, I could have one of these proactive safety outages and I might have to have be have evacuation risk. So I have a very high need for mobility and the outages disproportionately affect EV drivers. And so PG&E worked with WeaveGrid to proactively design a program that would help those customers make sure that they are charged ahead of any outages. And and so we gave customers the option to sign up for messaging, that additional messaging so that they know when there are those outages and making sure they're charged at the right times and or sign up for automated charge where we would control their charging. What was really interesting to me is that we learned that really the vast majority of customers wanted to sign up for that automated charge and have that peace of mind of knowing that WeaveGrid was using inputs both for their time of day and their rates to ensure they had the lowest cost charging, but also their safety and saying your safety is one of the key inputs and you will be a charge ahead of periods with risk. Yeah, I mean, it's this may be like macabre to put it this way, but the danger of wildfire-inspired outages is a real selling point for this product, right? It, it gives uh, EV drivers in California even extra incentive and impetus to be aware of the state of charge and when they're charging and where they're charging. I have a bunch of questions about the consumer side of this, but to start with, your car is collecting all this data about where you go and when you charge and the speed you drive, all this kind of stuff. I can imagine all kinds of privacy concerns uh, about this and, and, and just customer you know, leeriness about giving people access to this data. So how do you protect the data and how do you communicate? How do you set customers' minds at ease about sharing this kind of data? Yeah, so I'll I'll start out with talking about our experience, but it's it's part of why when you ask for a definition of telematics, I kept emphasizing that we are getting a subset of their telematics data because of these privacy considerations. And and so that's always been really paramount for for us to make sure that customers have comfort and and building trust is critical throughout someone's EV ownership journey um, if they're going to stay engaged in any utility programs. 
that utilities, you know, have to maintain very high trust value. And so with that, we have a driver facing portal where they're getting information about what their charging looks like, what their cost for charging is. They are getting plug-in reminders if they have a low state of charge and, and need to, to plug in. You know, who of us has not forgotten to plug in their phone and woken up the next morning and been like, ah, <laughs> if the impact of forgetting to plug in your phone was that you cannot take your child to daycare, <laughs> that has definitely been something in my life. That would be a, a, it's a huge drawback. So we're delivering, we're using the driver data to deliver value to the drivers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what keeps them engaged in the programs. And then information we share to the utilities is often aggregated and anonymized. Mm-hmm. Um, so your utility won't know exactly when and where Joe is at any given time. Over the years, I've followed uh, various efficiency programs and attempts at efficiency programs and demand response programs. Various things that give consumers information and then ask them to do something with it. And my impression over the years is that customers won't do things <laughs> like as a, you know, that's a, as a broad generalization, they just won't like it, it, even minimal expenditures of effort. You basically can't guarantee that people will do that. So I wonder how important is automation to you in this in this whole thing? And is that your experience of the customer side of it too? You know, it's interesting. It's definitely my historic experience of customers. <laughs> I started my career in demand response and managing behavioral demand response portfolios is rough. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> it's always worse than you think. That's been my discovery. It's yeah. like they won't they won't even do that. We made this as easy as possible. Wow. So automation really makes it as easy as possible for drivers, right? I encourage utilities to design programs that are what I call all carrot, no stick. Mm -hmm. A driver should be rewarded just for staying connected. Mm -hmm. That's all you're asking of them. If they don't have the flexibility to shift their charging. So in our algorithms, we're going to prioritize their customer experience. If that means that they can't shift charging, that's fine. What they're giving the grid is access and just saying in, enrolled in programs. And so, so that's the power of automation. It can create a much simpler customer experience. When you say connected, you just mean making their cars telematics available to the utility or the, the relevant subset of the telematics. Correct. And that actually feeds a little bit back to the privacy question that you asked. Well, we partner with automakers and gosh, theoretically could get everybody's data. Um, That's not how any of these systems are set up. We only will work with cars where drivers opt in and give you direct consent. Mm -hmm. And so none of your programs, none of the WeaveGrid ideas or programs require active, ongoing customer involvement, basically. You just got to sign up and say, yes, you can do this, and that's it for you as a customer? Well, I wouldn't say none. (laughs) No (laughs) programs that have the automated feature active require the customer to do anything. That customer just is in the program. They get to open their weekly emails and and see what's going on. As a side note, I shockingly find 80 to 90% open rates on those weekly emails. Oh, really? A year uh, long. Wait, and this is the email like, here's when your car charged yeah. and when it didn't? Yeah, here's the cost of your charging. Here's, here's some information about your behavior. 
people are opening that every single week, which huh. I've not seen in any other energy product. Yeah, that's wild. I wonder if it's just kind of like a self-selecting early adopter EV kind of nerd <laughs> Probably. phenomenon or something bigger than that. I thought that at first we've actually launched programs that are territory wide and reach the mainstream customers and EVs aren't that new anymore, right? Like there's a right. fair amount of affordable options out there. It's still on the early end of the adoption curve, of course. So I'm sure behaviors will keep changing. But yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's in some ways, the more mainstream adopter that's, I think, most interested in that information because the really early adopters kind of love being in their spreadsheets and tracking yeah. their charging themselves. Yes, yes, I know, I know a few. You know, it's the more mainstream folks that are like, oh, I need someone else to tell me. Right, and... um Another sort of striking thing I thought about the structure of these programs is that at least currently, customers are not getting rewarded or paid on a per kilowatt hour basis of either saving or shifting. So it's not a performance-based payment here. You just get a flat chunk of money for signing up. So what drove that decision? Why not um, make it more fine-grained? Is that Was that just for simplicity's sake, or was that something about customer psychology? Well, it comes from the perspective of how do you design for the customer first, right? Like I said, I've been in the business of selling KWH. That's the energy sector is, is KWH commodities mm -hmm. and, and grid value, and that's designing for the grid first. But EVs are a very high-stakes experience for a customer, um, it ha makes a pretty big difference to someone's life if you manage their thermostat incorrectly and, and extrapolating that to even bigger stakes with your car. So you really have to design with the customer first. And so that is why we, we recommend that utilities, instead of having programs that are extremely performance-based and rewards-driven on that KW or KWH values, that it is connection-based and access to optimized charging that gives you the insights, the controls, because even without those performance requirements, as Amanda was saying at the start, EVs are a hugely flexible resource, right? Mm -hmm. we, we mentioned that we know where, where cars are at any given time, but we haven't talked about what that means from a data standpoint yet. And really what we see is you see cars parked for 12, 15 hours. <laughs> yes, rather notoriously. And only needing two hours to charge. You know, if they have a low state of charge, they have need two hours to charge. So there's a ton of flexibility. But by designing the experience to say that all you have to do is stay connected, you're not setting a, a customer anxiety that you're <laughs> going to be forcing shifting based on grid value. Right. You want them to always feel that that high trust experience is paramount. So an EV driver who signs up and gets connected and doesn't end up for whatever, you know, uh, reasons for their personal lifestyle doesn't end up shifting their charging at all, gets the same reward as the customer who signs up and their vehicle shifts all over the place and is a flexible asset. They both just get a flat fee for signing up. That's the idea. Yes, that's the idea. Although for what it's worth in practice, none of these programs are, are single day long and, and over extended periods, everyone's participating. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we don't have anyone like opting out of all events, which I love hearing your surprise because that's not what my demand response life was like. <laughs> I wonder if there's a, 
you know, this is probably a subject for some dissertation sometime, but I wonder if, <laughs> how people's attitudes about their cars differ from their attitudes about their home and their attitudes about managing their car's energy differ from their attitudes about managing their home's energy. It seems like maybe they might be more adventurous, I guess, or more open when it comes to their cars. Because as you know, from your demand response experience, <laughs> people are very touchy about their homes. I'm just spitballing here, but there is something to like, you know, with a fuel, a gas driven vehicle, you're used to being partially full, right? right. And, and thinking about how far you can get on a partial tank. And so there might be a comfort with partial states of your battery that says, mm. like, look, at, listen, with a minimum of 20 to 30% state of charge, I'm confident that I can go get my kids, do whatever I need to do, because I wouldn't freak out if my gas tank, you know, was, was a fourth empty or full. You know, on some level, isn't this kind of something utilities ought to be doing anyway, kind of owning anyway? Like, this is, this is big potential loads in their territories. It seems a little weird to have management of that giant distributed load be like an extra uh, <laughs> an, an extra thing they do or a, or a third-party program that they bring on. Like, isn't it, do you think it's inevitable that, like, all utilities are going to have to do something like this eventually? Absolutely. I mean, I think considering how to control EV load is, is something that's on the mind of many utilities and, and some right now much more at the forefront than others. But um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, as we've talked about the expected load growth and then, of course, the, the customer experience alongside of it makes it a priority for, for utilities and, and in some places, some level of requirement or, or, or something like that coming from a commission or otherwise. Yeah. One side question about the California question in particular, or the California program in particular, um, you know, most of these programs I feel like are just about the charging and just signing up to have your charging somewhat controlled by the utility. The California program has this extra piece where you'll notify people and charge their cars if a, what is it, PPS, PSPS? PSPS. <laughs> Whatever, the temporary uh, blackout is coming. And it just sort of occurred to me, like, if there's a communication, if there's a sort of communication element of this, are there other things that you might want to communicate to drivers? Like, are there other types of information you can imagine, you know, if, if there's that communication channel, is that useful for other things? Or is that just kind of a bespoke California thing? You know, it was actually, we already had communication channels set up with the drivers and, and that's what the California program was built on. We're like, okay, customers are getting useful information through our text messages and, and emails. Let's add these PSPS notifications to that. Mm. So some of the other types of communications that are, are useful to them are things like those plug-in reminders where we know a car has arrived home and if it has a low state of charge, then we can send you a plug-in reminder that, hey, looks like you forgot to plug in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are other messages like that that can be useful. The other thing I think about, though, is how that can expand and, and grow. And we, we do regular driver interviews and surveys, and those plug-in reminders came out of driver feedback. We're like, this is my biggest pain point as an EV driver. Oh, really? But, <laughs> yeah, like, when I forget to charge, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, so so we keep doing those, and like they they know that they could just set themselves reminders on their phones, right? You don't have to wait for a company to text you. you can... Well. The difference is, though, is that you, so that's if you're plugging in every day, that's a very easy system, you know, and a habit that, that yeah. a driver can have, and maybe you have a, a reminder for it. But if you don't drive that much every day, which is right. true of most people, everyone thinks they're going on, you know, road trips and running yeah. down their whole range all the time. But if you come home and your car is at an 80% state of charge, you don't really need to plug that in. Yeah. And we also won't bug you in that scenario. <laughs> And so, so it can be helpful to be like, look, I only plug in when I need it. And it's helpful to have someone else remind me. Obviously, this is a relatively nascent, I don't know, would you call it an industry, activity, technology, <laughs> whatever it is, this sort of trying to coordinate EV charging with grid needs. It seems like at least at this stage, it's relatively like early going I, yeah, I would agree with you. I have to say that the, the through line of my energy career has been working on a thing when it is new for the electric grid. <laughs> <laughs> it's what makes EVs so exciting, though, because I've worked on a lot of stuff when it's new to the grid, and EVs are being adopted so much faster than anything else. It's wild. Like you've already observed, the impact is so much bigger from any individual car, let alone the millions of vehicles mm -hmm. that are being converted. So when I think about like, look, my driving force and inspiration is to make the biggest impact on climate that we can and the most quickly, that's what makes working in EVs and creating this whole new market segment really exciting. One thing, um, <laughs> you know, but customers won't do anything. Utilities won't do anything either. <laughs> Utilities are, uh, you know, sort of legendarily, uh, let's say, slow moving, not the most nimble organizations on the planet, maybe not the <laughs> most cutting edge thinkers on the planet, although they are sort of all of a sudden, I think, from their perspective, being asked <laughs> to be super innovative, cutting edge companies. But it looks to me from the outside like this is an obvious win. For a utility, like what I can't see a downside. They get more control over load shifting, and like that's something that literally every utility needs. So, what is the resistance? Is there resistance? Is it just lack of familiarity, or is there? Do you get pushback from utilities on any aspect of this? You know, one of the things that I've experienced is again being different with working in EVs is the alignment across stakeholders and that interest in moving faster. I literally, minutes before this recording, got off the phone with a utility. Uh, Amanda and I were on this call and they said, why move slow if we don't have to? Wait, a utility said that? A utility person <laughs> said that. <laughs> That's not the traditional utility message, let's just say. And I got to tell you, this was a big traditional utility. So you're hearing that shift in mentality. That's pretty exciting and, and great. Every single one of our pilots has expanded within months and not mm. waiting for a three-year project to be completed right. before we test this one tiny thing and then maybe do something else. They're saying, we know what works. Let's be running. Um, a great example of that is Excel Energy. And they've got eight states across the Midwest. They started out doing a pilot 
with us and, and a few other automaker partners to say, let's see how much we can have EV charging be shifted on a 24-7 basis to match our renewables production mm. for wind and solar. And, and they're like, that's been great. That went really well. And they went quickly into working with us on territory-wide programs across the full state of Colorado and adding more states onto that, such as Minnesota and New Mexico, where they're saying, like, okay, we can work with all customers on a more unique approach to off-peak charging. So I think the next stage will be how we layer multiple signals together for renewables and off-peak. But they're creating territory-wide programs because that urgency to meet a customer, all customer needs is there in, in a way that you don't normally see. That is not the story I usually hear about utilities. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> although, I, although I have wondered, I will say I have wondered for years, I'm like, I'm looking at utilities. They're on the verge of a death spiral that, you know, you read about this for years because demand has been sort of flat or even falling. They don't have reason to build more infrastructure and so they don't get a rate of return. So they don't make money. So they fall apart. All this, all this worry. And I'm like, well, here comes a giant new load a giant new pool of demand for electricity in the form of evs like could potentially double your load on your system and give you new life and new reason to build etc so why on earth have utilities not been like at the absolute front of the pack demanding good ev policy from the very beginning it's been a little bit of a mystery to me but it's good to hear that they're starting to at least like catch on yeah i mean i i think Utilities are electric utilities are, are very um, excited about EVs. Uh, I, I think you know you're asking what is the resistance, and I, I don't think there's a lot of resistance to EVs or, or managed charging or any of these things. I think there's just a combination of one, a lot of education needed on on the variety of technologies available, as well as you know not combating but working with a, a culture of prudency that comes from you know being <laughs> yeah. regulated entities, and yes. so. You know, there's constraints there, but um, I think there is eagerness. And I think, you know, as we, we talked about at the beginning of this segment, you know, the amount of EVs that are coming online at the speed which they're coming online, it's, it's all being taken more seriously. And then in addition to EVs, I mean, there's other electrification efforts, right? And so oh. when combined, um, yeah, you start to see what you were saying, falling or, or, or even just stagnant load growth turning into, into growth. Which is, which is exciting for utilities and could be um, there, there is a, a potential risk there for ratepayers, like every, you know, mm-hmm. residential and commercial customers. But that's, again, where the managed charging comes in and, and can put some of that downward pressure on rates. And, and in fact, electrification can be um, a benefit to everyone in that in that scenario. Yeah. And it's funny, I talk to a lot of people who are in the business of trying to convince utilities to do things. And usually <laughs> when you talk to them, it's like they're hacking through a jungle with a machete <laughs> in bare feet. So y'all are y'all are in the catbird seat here, actually doing something utilities want. So what would, you know, looking to the future, let's let's maybe get slightly utopian and look five years out or 10 years out. It seems like the current programs are relatively primitive relative to what's possible, what's coming. So sort of what are the next steps forward for the EV grid relationship that you're trying to manage? Yeah, there are layers of complexity on the grid. And so we've talked about how we want to keep things very simple for drivers. Mm. But what's interesting is how much complexity in the optimization we can create for the grid side of it. And so for for WeaveGrid, our true north 
is to to build what we call disco <laughs> di- distribution integrated smart charging orchestration. <laughs> wow, that was how much? How many meetings did that take to? Before you... <laughs> you know, to be honest, our CTO came up with it as a placeholder. We're like, we're gonna remake that. <laughs> we're, that's not gonna stick. <laughs> oh no, it's great. I, I'm, al- I'm already gonna remember it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is disco really, right? But that's saying. What we're seeing right now, what you describe as simplistic, I describe as being bulk system solutions. We're thinking about renewables at a bulk system level, off-peak at a bulk system transmission level. Disco says, let's take those bulk system constraints, but layer thing it needs down to the transformer level. And what does it take to operate your local assets? Because you can have an off-peak charging, for example, where suddenly all the cars are turning on at 11 p.m., call it, um, and that's fine for transmission. It's great for, for renewables, maybe. But you know, that local transformer limit could mm. be overblown, and right. you can increase the aging on that asset, right. which is a huge problem with the supply chain constraints right now. Because major utilities, the largest utilities in the country, have one-year, two-year backlogs on their transformer inventory. And smaller Mm. utilities are looking at two- to five-year backlogs. So the complexity we really want to help utilities access is optimizing for for all of their needs down to that localized asset. Right. So that's where geography comes in again, the Mm -hmm. where is in addition to when. That's right. And there's just been numerous studies on on just that point, which is you know, looking at a, a given kind of steady area. And, and if you had high levels of EV adoption, just the feeders in those areas exceed their maximum loading limit if unmanaged charging. And what that means is that there's not sufficient power supply uh, in that scenario. So again, I, I think, you know, it still points to managed charging, but again, going beyond kind of some of these uh, smaller scale, looking at the great impacts at large, um, as Smithy referred to. How does this all relate to vehicle-to-grid technology? Like most of what your existing programs, as far as I've seen, are all what you might call grid-to-vehicle. It's just timing when energy moves from the grid into the vehicle. But of course, there's also a lot of hype uh, everywhere about you know energy moving from the vehicle to the grid when needed, when the grid is underpowered or, or whatever, or when, um, you know, for peak shaving or whatever, pulling energy out of uh, vehicles. Are y'all involved in that at all? Or does that fit in? It seems like it fits into this general paradigm. Absolutely. It does fit into the paradigm of, you know, going from this managed charging, uh, which is, you know, unidirectional to bidirectional charging. And, you know, I think right now looking at where let's just say V2X is a vehicle to anything, something, whether that be <laughs> a grid, a, a home, a building, whatever that may be, there are some serious market barriers, but the potential is very real. And the ability to scale those barriers is also something I think we'll be able to do in, in the coming years and adds to the value that vehicles can provide to the grid and, and to the customer or, or the driver, I should say. And um yeah, I mean, I think V2X, you can look at it in a, a variety of ways. I I think there are some additional barriers for the vehicle to grid side as compared to the vehicle to home or building that you might use in, let's say, a resilience situation. But I think all of those were, were kind of evaluating and, and I think are really exciting kind of direction that we're headed. 
I'm so curious about this because vehicle to grid is largely nascent. There's not really much of it happening. And I just hear the widest range of opinions about, <laughs> about its future. Like I can find people who are absolutely will poo-poo the whole idea that customers aren't going to want grids taking energy out of their EVs, that taking energy back out of the battery and, you know, this bi-directional charging is going to wear the batteries down faster, you know, be a negative consumer experience. So I, I, I'll be honest, I have, you know, maybe the most and least controversial opinion on this, which is that <laughs> I agree pretty strongly with both sides. <laughs> There is a risk to like V2G not being done right, being a terrible customer experience. Do customers trust it today? Do they want you right. to pull energy out of their battery? What if it's for their home? What if it's for the grid? How would they react to each of those? And there's amazing potential, as Amanda was describing, to give actually improve the driver experience overall and the grid experience, um, lower the costs for rate payers, which drivers also are. <laughs> and so it's a question of staging. Mm. Right. Just like we we're saying, when and where are you charging? When and where do you do V2X? I think is the, the most important part is that we need to grow that customer journey, stage it appropriately, understand that there's there is so much value that the grid needs and can get from learning about charging behavior in a V1G world that will inform how to create the best V2G experiences. And I just assume since you're in the business of kind of the software of EV to grid communication that if V2X came along, if the technology came along and was available, it would integrate into your product pretty smoothly, right? That's correct. And and not just if, I mean, several of the automakers that we work with right now are very excited about creating V2G capabilities mm. in their vehicles. And so, so we're actually collaborating with them on that design process and, and helping them have insights into their customer experiences today, the utility needs today. And so, so we're definitely key stakeholders in, in the growth of, of V2G. Yeah, it's a little um, trickier because, as you say, the benefits are grid-wide, you know, which, again, are potentially enormous. You have the world's largest distributed battery, could do enormous things for the grid. But the consumer benefit, the EV driver benefit, is less clear <laughs> when it comes to the grid pulling energy out of their vehicles. The most immediate benefit is generally when you think about the vehicle-to-home world, where what if my car can be my backup? Yes, right. And then there's also the, in the vehicle to grid V2G scenario, what is the compensation to the driver, right? right? So, you know, that is that is one of those market barriers I was citing, one of one of a few. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think there, if it's valuable enough to the grid and there's interest in participation from the driver's car, it will be presumably priced as so. And... That is part of it, is the value proposition to the driver and kind of going into this continued narrative of EV costs coming down. And, you know, already EVs compete with just kind of the operations and maintenance, and that would continue to be a cost savings or at least cost benefit to the driver. So there's kind of a virtuous cycle there. A couple of final questions. One is, Smithy, it's for you, I I suppose, since you are uh, blessed with the opportunity of dealing with utilities all the time. Um, (laughs) It's clear that there's enough in it for utilities to go for this already. Like, as you say, the utilities are enthused, and why wouldn't they be enthused at the ability to manage their load a little better? But, you know, in the larger utility question, there are all kinds of 
crossed incentives and mixed incentives and bad incentives in the utility world, you know, reasons that utilities have for pushing back against efficiency and distributed energy and all these kind of things, which they don't really make money off of. So I wonder, um, when it comes to the EV utility interface, are there utility reforms that you can think of that would ease or accelerate this? Like, are there things regulators could do to improve this situation? Yeah, I'll open that, but then we'll also give it to Amanda. She she leads our policy team, and so she's really having those reform-based conversations. Oh, you get the blessings, uh, <laughs> Amanda. Yeah, but I, I mean, at a, at a high level, I mean, there's, there's definitely things in the utility business model that are fundamentally flawed to grid modernization more generally. Mm. You know, there have been utilities that are also asking for changes so that they can make returns on software investments, for example, mm. so that... You know, they want to be aligned on their incentives so that delivering the best customer value is also how they can operate most efficiently, right? Anytime <laughs> that's misaligned, it creates problems for both sides. So, so there's definitely components. But yeah, Amanda, I, you're, you're welcome to, to speak to some of the conversations that, that you're more directly involved in. Yeah, I mean, I, I love your performance-based regulation tidbit there. Um, <laughs> it could go on that discussion for a while. But yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think some of it is is just kind of, you know, some of the things we've been hitting on, which is scale. We've been dabbling around with pilots for a while. And I think getting to that point where it's just like we understand what's happening. We understand we need to do a lot more of it very soon. Right. And getting from pilots to programs. You know, we mentioned that we're, we're, we're helping with some of those in various places across the country. But the scale is just really not where it needs to be right now. So I would say that's just the overwhelming kind of key issue here is just like, let's do more faster. And do you think that will require regulators coming in and saying you have to do this? I mean, is that what, what you want to see happen? That does expedite things. I, <laughs> I, I, but I, I mean, I also think that that takes some of the, it's an ecosystem situation, right? I mean, right. Sometimes it's the regulator, sometimes it's the legislator to the regulator to the utility. Sometimes it's the utility having a great proposal. Sometimes it's just that. Well, what I was just thinking was like, I feel like I talk to a lot of utilities who say, well, let's start with this pilot. I want to do something territory wide, but I don't know if it's going to get approved. Yeah. And there is that. So they're like, well, do the regulators require it or do the regulators need to give utilities more flexibility? And that obviously varies by region. We generally advocate for giving utilities that choice because that is something that I hear from utilities where they say, I have an idea, but I don't think it's going to get approved. Right. Yeah. Well, and then that was going to be kind of this, the second bit there, which is education. Education on this issue. How can particular technologies help? What does that program design look like? What are effective incentives? Some of this you learn from those said pilots, but some of this is already done. Yeah, I wonder, like, do you feel like at this point you've done enough pilots and test programs that you have a good handle on things? Or are, you, are there still sort of like fundamental learnings out there? Or do you feel like at this point you're tweaking and improving performance? I would say there is absolutely no reason to hold back on any of those bulk system values. Even the 24-7 renewables match, I'll be honest, going into that pilot, I was like, okay, this we're going to like learn about complexities and a lot to adapt. And it was so successful so quickly that it would be great to see a lot of these bulk system solutions go even bigger and to think about EVs outside of traditional models, like not just trying to, you know, 
square peg round hole them into demand response programs <laughs> and <laughs> create things that are really ready for EVs. And so that's something that I think from a design perspective, it's ready to go big on. I think that what we're really learning is that full disco capability and, and we're doing pilots on power quality and an additional layers for asset level support. And, and that's where I think you're going to have fine tuning in, in different regions. I would agree with all of that. And I think the answer is there's fundamental learnings. There's not a good reason to hold back at this point, mm -hmm. but I think there's always going to be market developments. I mean, that's what keeps us like, that's what keeps me interested in this kind of work. Like th <laughs> things are always changing. And so working with that and, and some of those changes are just sorely needed, you know, like we, we've talked a little bit about how, what are some of the behaviors? Because to date, a lot of EV adoption has been by early adopters and mm -hmm. that segment of the population is pretty homogeneous and um, privileged. And I think mm -hmm. so kind of like as EVs become something that, you know, everyday people have and how does that change behaviors with charging is things that we still are going to be learning. And like, let's be open to those kinds of learnings and get ahead of that understanding. But at the same time, like the technology is proven, the benefits are proven. So like, let's not wait indefinitely when the technology is coming online, people are excited like we, we, like you said, there's a lot of alignment here. So let's just do more of it. As you say in your sort of in your literature, EVs are a fairly unique form of distributed energy resource, DERs, as we nerds call them, <laughs> uh, a unique form in that they're very frequently and directly used and of great emotional <laughs> significance to their owners and the timing of when they're used and when they're charged is much more immediately relevant to their owners than say, you know, a water heater or whatever. But nonetheless, managing the interface of the grid and DERs generally is a thing, a problem, an area that needs solutions. So I wonder, are you, do you have plans to move beyond EVs and get into coordination and management of other kinds of DERs? Yeah, so that's a really interesting trajectory because we both want to think about what is the whole home experience for customers, mm -hmm. where EVs are by far the largest load and, and the largest both impact on the you know driver's home life and grid impact. So, so that's a great place to start. But how do we help people think about their whole home is one area that we've, you know, explored a bit. The other is, you know, meaning as EVs grow, right now the volume is really in light duty vehicles and and mostly residential, yes. right? But we want to help fleet adoptions grow for light duty, for medium heavy duty. And so we also think about how do we apply our expertise in transportation and think about that in like much more broad classes as, as you have more multifamily adoption of EVs. And, and I just think there's still a lot of potential still in that transportation world. Yeah. And fleets are, are, you know, much less so than individual EVs. Like there's less of that kind of emotion and psychology mm -hmm. to, to work through. And they're much more just big pools of batteries. And that's, you know, that seems like a big chunk of good stuff for the utilities there. So yeah, when you talk about V2G, I mean, fleets and especially yeah. buses are just an excellent place to start, right? That's not something where you have to stage that customer journey because <laughs> the customer has a fleet operator who can right. define the needs in a very different way. And, and there's a predictability to when the buses are needed. That's, that's very different from that emotional need for being able to jump in your car at any time. 
So can you envision then in our utopian future, <laughs> assuming we don't have some sort of fascist breakdown in the next uh, five to ten years, <laughs> in our utopian future, is the sort of vision that kind of consumers have electric households and cars and appliances routinely, that becomes routine, and the grid knows about all those things, and the grid is communicating with all those things, and to some degree coordinating all those things as flexible load and maybe flexible storage, and the customer more or less has very little to do with it? Is that the, <laughs> is, is that the kind of end state we're after here? It uh, certainly depends who you ask, but I think, yeah, from the, the weave grid point of view, yes. Having, you know, an unnecessary level of interaction with a driver customer isn't beneficial to either the adoption trend or or just kind of getting them to do the behavioral things you need, making mm-hmm. it not very behavioral, right? Very automated and yeah, I, I think, you know, this is an active discussion in, in a few different kind of policy venues that I'm tracking where we do have a trend where you have more customers with more DERs. Each of those have their own unique load shapes and, and use cases and all of those things. And at what point do you kind of merge some of that and yeah. get some, a kind of big picture, but like be prepared for that future, but also know that like we're still you know, at the start of a lot of this adoption. So yeah, I, I do think fundamentally it's going to be a, a fairly hands-off approach um, and, and kind of testing what customers respond best to. It's a really unique and exciting challenge and it's fun to see how all these things can kind of come together to do this really dynamic, flexible grid that we're envisioning to support on the other side, on the grid, you know, supply side, the kind of clean resources yeah, this is real uh, bleeding edge stuff and, and moving so quickly, as you say. It's uh, an exciting time to be in this. Thank you two so much. I've been wanting to do something about EVs and grids for ages. This is very uh, enlightening and maybe we'll uh, check back in in a few years and see what sort of luxury automation we've uh, we've achieved. <laughs> Thanks so much for having us. Really enjoyed the discussion here. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.